It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Chris, what do you know about diapers? <laughs> I've changed a few in my time. I've changed a few as well. Um, but what do you know about Taylor Swift? I think her name is. <laughs> Taylor Swift is a recording artist that um, wields an ex- extraordinarily amount of power, as far as I could tell. Yeah, I think people like her. People who like her are often called Swifties, I've heard. Swifties. Yeah, Swifties. So I was on the internet and I discovered that Taylor Swift has a big tour that everyone is going to this summer. Are you? Do you have tickets, Chris? <laughs> no, I, I tried to get another mortgage for the house and get some ticks, <laughs> but it didn't come through in time. <laughs> yeah, they're expensive. They're like, I think like 900 bucks a show or something yeah, like that. And that's like, yeah, that's if you're lucky, I think. Yeah, how many years could you listen to the run out and get bonus content for one Taylor Swift content? <laughs> it's got to be at least like a decade. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that should be in our new promo materials. <laughs> We're one decade's worth of Taylor Swift's <laughs> internet. Yeah, president. Taylor Swift one night or a decade of the run out. You decide. Um, no, I was I was going to say that I, I read this funny article about how Swifties, her like hardcore fans, are wearing diapers to her concerts so that they don't have to leave. They like, don't miss a minute. They don't miss a single minute of Taylor Swift. Right. And um, so they can just like pee their pants or whatever and not have to worry about it. Plus, the excitement might cause them to pee their pants. So there's that extra bonus. Right, right. Is that if she comes on stage and you instantly wet yourself. Yes, then you're good to go. Yeah, you, like if she changes her outfits and then you pee a little. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I thought that was amazing. And my first thought was, I wonder if we have any listeners who wear diapers when they listen to our podcast. <laughs> just, so just they don't the miss kids. a word. <laughs> but then I realized that you could just like listen to podcasts like in headphones on your phone and you can go to the bathroom alone and there's no... <laughs> It would just be weird to just like sit and listen to a podcast in a diaper. Yeah, totally. And also you can press pause. Yeah. So you you can can go take a leak. So if there is someone out there wearing a diaper while listening to the run out, it's for a whole different reason (laughs) that, you know, we can get into maybe in another show. Because there's aside from the Swifties, there's a whole other part of the uh, adult population that enjoys wearing diapers yeah, for I think various there, reasons. Yeah, I think there's some kink there's some in, kink in, diaper in, wearing as well. Infantilism or something like that? I don't know, Chris, yeah. whatever. <laughs> I don't know what sick shit you're looking at. But the sick shit I was looking at made me think about a business idea for climbing. Have you ever had a business idea for a climbing like product that you think would just kind of revolutionize our sport? Several, yeah. Okay. And actually, I'm also you know, been thinking about revenue streams mm. since we had Luke Mihal on and he talked about his revenue streams and we only have one revenue stream and it's like a more of a revenue trickle mm. um, or drip um, called patreon.com slash runout podcast. <laughs> and we appreciate those few people on there giving us money, wearing diapers, whatever it takes. Um, but yeah, I've been thinking about revenue streams. So. Okay. Well, tell me about this one. Well, yeah. Well, to touch on that topic of streams and trickles, <laughs> exactly. like my idea 
<laughs> is about diapers and bringing diapers into the climbing space. Mm-hmm. So I just think that there's like this incredible opportunity to wear diapers on like a multi-pitch climb or something like that. Like there's this problem that we have with people pissing all over the wall. Right. There's a problem of like having to do your business in front of your partner on a big wall. Mm -hmm. There's a problem in Indian Creek with like waste and wag bags and not, you know, people just shitting on the crypto soil or whatever. Diapers solve all of these problems. Yeah, and don't forget peeing on other people, peeing on yourself. I mean, if you've ever climbed on El Cap, then are you talking about climbing or what? <laughs> no, we're back to the uh we're back to the kink. Um no. <laughs> but yeah, I mean the golden showers on yourself on on El Cap is a pretty common thing. Mm. And anybody who's climbed up there like overnight more than a couple times has like peed all over themselves because of the updrafts and you can like oh, yeah. watch your pee sometimes rise above you and then this draft stops and it comes back down oh just like a, a april rainstorm exactly yeah um what do you think of my idea do you think climbers would would adopt a, a diaper a climbing friendly diaper brand well i mean we could either partner with someone like depends you know to have a whole other line or you could go out on your own, but uh, I, was, I would call I would call her this diaper Swifties. The Swifties. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Well, let me get to it in a second because I think it's about marketing. Okay, you know, because as we have found out since um, a couple podcasts ago, um, it turns out that someone does make a sewn quad. Okay, and it turns out that that someone at least one company is our is you know one of my benefactors black diamond black diamond literally makes this idea that we had this idea that we had on the show about making a sewn quad instead of just tying a sling yes somehow Someone, somehow they Bla- black diamond does that between and sells it. between now and like three weeks ago they after they heard the run out they rushed it into production and um at least two different listeners of the show sent us pictures of this thing oh hanging God. on the rack in a climbing store. So my point is, is that like, it's about marketing. You can get people to buy anything, <laughs> nearly anything, you know? And so it's the funny thing is, is that Black Diamond, this, this storied company, this company that Great you know, brand. Was, was, you know, Chenard equipment in the back of his van and then became Black Diamond and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and on and on, the Camelot and the all these different amazing pitons and, you know, stuff. The Talon. Every climber has used, they put their entire <laughs> reputation behind the sewn quad, right? <laughs> well, I think that this and is so good this news is for it. us because I assume we're going to get royalties <laughs> off of, off I of the sales of I assume the check is on its way. Yeah. I'm still amazed that they, they it only took them three weeks to get it to market. But well, good all on you, you guys. have to do is like take a sling and sew it. So <laughs> it probably they didn't have to go to like the drawing board on right. this one. <laughs> Nevertheless, what kind of marketing are we looking at? I mean, that's really the thing: is For, convincing someone they need walkie-talkies to go climbing is the same kind of thing. Right? We can convince them they need diapers. Well. Those walkie talk. There is like walkie talkie companies now for in the climbing space, and I'm actually curious about um, testing those out because they kind of seem sweet. 
but yeah, so what what's my marketing plan for the Swifties? I'm not sure, Chris. I mean, I think that it would have to have like a gusseted crotch so you could high step. Totally. Um, it would need obviously have need to be like super environmental. Like maybe it's like made from it Bamboo. would be it would have to be like made from recycled diapers from Taylor Swift concerts. <laughs> so we like upcycle like old yeah. ta- Taylor Swift diapers and which then is bring funny them into because when you space. said it i just you know it's like you, you go to a show and like the last note hits and the <laughs> lights come up and there's this kind of like you know there's this kind of ho-hum feeling of everybody's like shuffling out and i just literally when you were talking about it, i imagine them all just like tearing off their diapers and like hucking them into the the one like bin by the door yeah, with their like drink bracelets right. and like <laughs> exactly <laughs> And just like tossing them, you know, it's like overflowing. There's some dude that's got to like freaking, and we'd, be, we'd run in and be like, no, 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 yeah, yeah. don't throw those away. Yeah. So we'll take every single one of those diapers. Our overhead gonna... cost is super low. <laughs> Look, if there's any investors out there that want to invest in this, but I, I am kind of serious. Like, I do think that if there's a listener out there who, who agrees with me, I would love for you to, I challenge you to go climb a multi-pitch route in diapers. And tell me it's not a better experience <laughs> than climbing without diapers. Yeah. yeah, do some R and D. We'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll bring you in on on the IPO. All right. Well, I actually was. I've been I've been uh, you know thinking about all these ideas, and I actually have a. I think I have a better name for you. Okay. Okay. I think we should call them Waldies. <laughs> Waldies. Okay. Yeah. It's like undies, but for the wall. Okay, Waldies. I Waldies. like that. That's a good name, don't you think? It's better than Swifties. Because Swifties are probably we're probably going to get sued because somebody <laughs> is already like there's a box of actual pre-manufactured Swifties mm-hmm. in a container ship on its way from China right now because somebody already read that article and was like, right. "Why wear normal diapers when you can wear Swifties?" Oh, sure. Yeah. So yeah. there's probably going to be a, a trademark issue there, but uh, Waldies mm. have not been. I don't think that's been taken. Waldy sounds like a demographic would that, that like old aid climbers like with big asses who like shit themselves a lot would wear with a Waldy. Yeah, yeah totally. I feel like Swifties is more like the young sport climber. Well, that's demographic. what I was thinking because the with any product, <laughs> dude, any product. I mean, and and um, you know, it's like uh, uh, Friction Labs is really good at this, right? Mm. They like take the same thing and like chew it up a little more and call it something different. Right. And, you know, they've got like really chewed up and not so chewed up. And so we, we're going to need to expand once the Waldies hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the thing is you could have like the, the you know, the sort of low volume Waldie for mm-hmm. <laughs> two pitch climbs. <laughs> <laughs> you know? LV. The Waldies LV <laughs> for when you know you're not, if you've had, if you, if you like stopped at Qdoba before going, going to uh, the Black Canyon, you're going to need the Waldies HV, the high volume diaper. <laughs> but if you're just like trying to send your proj, go with the Waldies LV. Oh my God. Right. I feel like this is a yeah. good idea. Yeah. So then you've got a whole different, different bunch, you know, it's just like harnesses. Yeah, there's there's really just they're all kind of the same, but you know there's different models for different different parts. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you've got different. You're gonna have to go different 
different colors you could do. And then we could expand into other other sports as well, you know. Mm-hmm. You could have hunting waldies. Ooh, okay. Or stuff, you know, they'd be camouflage. If you put camouflage on anything, right. like all these Yahoos will buy it 100%. Yeah. So it just has to be camoed, even though it's under your clothes. Yeah, it's still camoed. Yeah, it's still camoed. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we got to get some feedback on this, like do some market. I mean, we're kind of doing market research right here. Right. On the Waldy. Um, what about you personally? Would you wear a Waldy? I would wear... I might wear a Waldy LV. I don't think I'd go HV. <laughs> what if you, um, you know, were driving across Utah and you stopped at PF Chang's because it was the only <laughs> restaurant that you could find that was open? Right. I mean, you'd want to have a few HVs in the yeah, back. That's you true. Know, well, but- that's the other thing. I mean, this is gonna. It's gonna just like you know, you find uses for your carabiners elsewhere outside of climbing and things. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 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 Waldi is definitely like a road trip machine, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to get to Yosemite in a hurry, right. I mean, everybody's like trying to drive their car, hold their pee bottle at the same time. Yeah. I mean, the Waldy, it's like two hands on the wheel, baby. Yeah. You're in control. <laughs> in control. You're in control even when you're not in, in control. control. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's a good revenue stream for us. <laughs> uh, I do like the uh, sound of that stream, Chris. I think the Waldy also, one of the things that might sell it to like the gym crowd <laughs> is if it had a cell phone pocket. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's a place to uh, you know, keep your keep your phone. The thing about like the thing about it is that like you know, most climbing gyms they don't want you walking around in the bathroom mm-hmm. with your climbing shoes on. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge pain in the ass to take your climbing shoes off. Right. To go to the bathroom right. and put them back on. This is true. Yeah. And so that's where the Waldy comes in. I mean, there's a market for Waldies just walking around New York City where there's literally no bathrooms. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) I don't know why we aren't all wearing diapers all the time. That's a good point. Yeah, especially heavy drinkers like us. (laughs) (laughs) Where this would really shine, Mm -hmm. I think, is alpine climbing. Oh, for sure. Because shitting and pissing uh, at high altitude when you've got all that clothing on I mean, in all honesty, I can't believe that, like, the North Face hasn't already done this, hasn't already stolen our idea in a use the time machine, go back in time to make a Waldy that goes under your 8,000-meter suit. Because every person I've ever talked to that climbs those kind of things have shit on themselves, like, all over themselves. So Yeah. Well, I mean, think about, like, how awful it is. It's dark. Right. You're at 7,000 meters. Right. It's negative 50 degrees out. Mm-hmm. You're going to go outside and take a shit? Are you kidding me? No. You're going to stay in your tent yeah. and poop in your Waldies. <laughs> exactly. Alpine edition. Yeah. <laughs> Keep you warm when wet, baby. If we could only get someone like Messner to like get behind this thing, we'd be, it'd be, un- and then the thing that would be cool if Waldies had existed is then in one of his museums. Yes. You'd be like, this is Kirk Diemberger's Waldy yes. from, you know, whatever, Nangaparbat or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, just like, like preserved Waldies. Preserved Waldies. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
I mean, I feel like at some point it's going to start with just Waldies that go under the harness, mm-hmm. but it's it's going to have to progress to full strength Waldies. Full strength Waldies. That's what I was going to get at. It's like a runner strength clip in loop, um, you know, for yeah. for whatever. But yeah, eventually your harness is your Waldies. Yeah, a haul loop. A haul loop for, <laughs> for whatever those are for. <laughs> totally. Yeah, a a runner strength Waldies. Because then, even if you had it under your harness, if you needed a repel, right, you, you could, could always bust out your wall. Off the Waldies, baby, <laughs> wrap right off the Waldy. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. If you had a Waldy that converted into a quad, oh my god! <laughs> I feel like Black Diamond's already made it. <laughs> they are. It's like being rushed to market as we speak. <laughs> so now, what if? There was a market, you know how like in Japan or whatever, they have like the the women's underpants and like vending machines and shit. I didn't know that, but okay. (laughs) Well, I've never been. Please go on. But you know, there's this whole thing with like used undies, but what about used Waldies? Like selling used Waldies on the internet. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like if you could buy like Honold's Waldies after you like free soloed El Cap, it's like $500,000. Totally. I mean- how much money could he raise for the foundation just by selling Waldies? I mean, there's like used Waldies. There's like Jordans, like shoes, sneakers from like when he won the NBA championships, and right. then there's Honold's Waldies from like free soloing El Cap. Exactly. Like those things go on eBay for a lot of money. Because look, he was up there for three and a half hours. Yeah, he, he got like he, yeah. a normal adult. The has Boulder to pitch evacuate. left a skid mark. Exactly. <laughs> Oh my God, six hundred thousand! <laughs> now, what if we got like a Bluetooth connection, <laughs> so your phone could be connected to your Waldies? Okay. I mean, what are the possibilities there? I mean, limitless. Like you could, yeah, it would. Um, you could have apps that just connect and like monitor your poo output. And your hydration level. Yeah. Right? It's like beep, beep, beep. You need to drink, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It could just like, connect, <laughs> it could send it right to your training beta account. Exactly. Like, <laughs> the Iwaldies. Like, then <laughs> like Neely Quinn would text you. You should be like, and she's bro, like, I'm monitoring your Waldies. You eating too much meat. <laughs> What's your carb intake right now? You need to drink water, my friend. I'm getting a red alert on the Iwaldi. It's <laughs> a code code brown on the Iwaldis right now. Exactly. We've analyzed your Waldies and you're definitely eating too much fiber. is the director of the Ontario Alliance of Climbers, which is working to keep access open to many threatened crags all across Ontario.
I do have to tell you guys that I am sitting uh, right now in the uh, Bad Beta podcast headquarters. Uh, oh, wow. I know they put out an episode like once a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I it looks kind of dusty in there. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Things have changed in their lives, so I don't think we're going to be seeing a podcast uh, anytime soon from the Bad Beta podcast, but we'll see. What is, is, is there a feud? Is there, has there been a fall? No, no, no feud, but uh, they all hate each other. (laughs) No, no, not so much. Uh, I would say there was, uh, some bad beta on the contraception and now there's another, uh, another person, another mouth to feed. So yeah. Dude, it hasn't stopped us. I know. I know. (laughs) I always tease Anna about that. I'm like, when's the next episode dropping? She's like, shut up. Yeah. Come on. They've recorded a lot of episodes, but just not not put them out like not taking the time on the on the back end to actually put them together and and uh and send them out so who knows there's somewhere collecting dust that's like that's like podcast masturbating (laughs) (laughs) you can't just sit in your room and podcast and not put it out there (laughs) so well that's cool uh i would look i look forward to the next episode even if it's 10 years from now Um, it'd be great uh to hear from from bad beta podcast again but we're not here to talk about that to unpaid promotion for the bad beta podcast we're here to talk about ontario climbing and uh, access issues um and i guess i actually wanted to kind of just ask you a bit about maybe if you could give us a you know in a nutshell rundown of what the region's climbing looks like ontario is i I don't know population of about 15 million people and most of the folks are sort of on the the southern region I want to say about 10 million uh, around the sort of the Golden Horseshoe, which is from Toronto, the greater Toronto area down to Niagara Falls. And in that area is predominantly dolomitic limestone. So we, you know, it's, it's referred to as the Niagara Escarpment. And it's about 1,200 kilometers of, uh, of limestone that sort of peaks its head uh, above the surface from time to time and provides some pretty decent climbing opportunities, although most of it is unclimbable, but there are certainly, you know, sections that have pretty nice stone, uh, that offer great climbing. Uh, and that's most of the population in Ontario, but outside of that, there is quite a bit of opportunity and, and still quite a bit of climbing, um, North in, in sort of the Sudbury region, far out as Thunder Bay with sleeping giant. And then the Ottawa Valley as well has, um, quite a bit of granite climbing also. Why don't you give us just kind of the rundown of how the closures have kind of unfolded over the past few years? Um, when did development start? When were these crags kind of like, you know, fully developed? And, and when did these uh, access issues begin to percolate? Despite being sort of, um, you know, not an area that's thought about in terms of its climbing possibilities or its history, there is a decently rich history of climbing in Ontario. You know, we've had Famous visitors visit Ontario. The Jerry Moffat once came through, I believe. Um, Peter Croft has also spent some time on the escarpment and, and put up some notable first ascents. Sonny Trotter has has uh, you know cut his teeth here in Ontario and, and then moved uh, you know broader. But climbing sort of started around the I want to say the the mid 70s, and then when the 80s came in, we had the you know, the modern hardware come in and, and sort of the, the sport climbing uh, revolution began in, in Ontario, particularly around the escarpment. Um, you know, I think for a long time, it sort of flew under the radar. Uh, land managers not really understanding what climbing is and, 
what the implications are of it. Um, what does this mean from a risk perspective or from, um, you know, from a perspective of trying to, to, to understand the sport and how it fits into conservation. Um, and so slowly over the, the nineties, some of these areas were closed to climbing, um, for fear of, of more or less liability. Um, and that has been a sliding or cascading thing since, since the nineties. Ontario Parks, which is the most recent change that we've had here with them taking a harder stance on climbing, um, they have they have taken a more nuanced approach in the sense that um, they have looked at it more on a location by location basis. And some of the locations where they have the ability to to you know to monitor to police, they have been able to you know to to shut down climbing or to have a, a conversation with the community to say climbing, you know, shouldn't be happening here. And in other locations like Bon Echo Park, we have been able to work with Ontario Parks um, and with some hard work from the uh, Alpine Club of Canada, the Toronto chapter, have been able to secure some access to some locations. Recently, that has changed. And the issue as it pertains to Ontario Parks is that um, in the legislation, for the Provincial Parks and Conservations Act, climbing is listed uh, as a prohibitive activity. It's not it's not legally allowed without the um, expressed permission of the superintendent. And so many of these locations, it's been permitted to occur and to continue, um, but recently that has changed. I mean, I guess let's cut uh, or get right to um the most interesting uh, aspect that, or, or news item that has popped up in, in the last, past few weeks, which is the active removal of the bolts by by the parks, which I couldn't believe when I saw that shit. I mean, like people like chopping bolts on perfectly good crags was sort of, um, I don't know, I'd, I'd always assume that land managers just wouldn't bother with, with taking that extra additional step. Like, you know, they'd close, they'd nominally close a, a cliff or something like that. But the, you know, going through the process of just removing all the bolts from the walls just seemed to be like a step too far for anyone to, who would be in a position like that to care about. Yeah, um, it's pretty shocking. The crag that was chopped was Rockwood Conservation Area. So it's, uh, it's technically not an Ontario park. However, it is, it is a conservation area. It is a conservation authority. And it, it does house the the highest concentration of hard rock climbs in Ontario. So it's a very small cliff, but it's a slice of Spain almost. It's very overhanging limestone, beautiful setting with sort of a light side and a dark side and separated by a nice, uh, sort of a nice, you know, lush field. Climbers have been climbing there since um, the late 90s. And funny enough, that conservation area actually came to climbers in the late 90s and literally so showed up at a gym and said, Hey, we think we have a nice cliff. We'd love to look into either monetizing this or providing some recreational opportunities for the kids camps that we uh, bring into the park every summer. Uh, what do you think? And a gentleman by the name of Zach trainer went out to the location with these folks, looked at the possibilities and thought, I don't think any children necessarily will be, uh, you know, top roping five eights here, but there is a lot of a lot of potential at this cliff and so you know talked with the park and with their 
permission, started developing the cliff and now, you know, has about 40 routes that are anywhere from 12A to 14C, I want to say, maybe even 14D. So as you can imagine, climbers, uh, as you get into those grades are very stubborn. They are very, uh, set on their ways and, um, have a lot of, uh, determination. And so despite the closures that have happened at that property as of the 2000s, climbers have continued to, to go there, have continued to, to visit this cliff. Um, it's sort of in a remote region of the park. And so the rangers don't really have the resources to go there as often as they probably would like. And climbing has continued with the odd you know, visit from rangers that would show up and say, hey, you're not supposed to be here. You know, you'd either get a ticket or you'd get kicked out and the very next day climbers would be there again. So this is a cycle that has continued for, I want to say, you know, 20 years. Um, we attempted the OEC, the Ontario Alliance of Climbers, we attempted to have direct discussions with them in the 2010 range and provided some tangible solutions to their obstacles, to their issues, whether it's liability you know, the ability to get rescued, um, the ecological impacts that climbing has, all those things could be solved relatively easily. And despite those efforts, those talks broke down. We re-engaged with them again in 2017 and the same thing happened. And again in 2021. So this has been a cycle where, frankly, I just think there's, there's an unwillingness to see the true issue and the true uh, wave of what's coming. And that is people want to recreate on these lands. They want to recreate in this fashion. And I think their view is that this is going to create more work for them, uh, that they don't understand the sport and that they're, they're just not willing to have those conversations. And so as a result, we're just sort of stuck in this cycle. And to your point, Andrew, you know, the, the, the leap that has happened to go ahead and employ a rope access crew to go in there and remove the bolts um, is is just a step beyond what we thought we would ever see here and, and kind of creates a scary precedent. So um, I have a question though. I mean, you mentioned how it was originally asked for, if you will. And then when they first closed it, um, you know, you, you sort of briefly mentioned their issues, but in a, in a more real world thing, yeah, what what was what was their reasoning for closing it and you know compared to what you saw um what i mean is you know they they had these oppositions to it um and certainly climbers have an impact you know um we have our of own course. issues and and you know it's it's true like you know the the base of a cliff gets trampled and the and the plants die and you know there there are actual impacts so what was their stated reason and how valid were the issues, you know, even, even though you, you have solutions to them? A few issues that were brought forward to us, first being the ownership of the land. So the entire cliff area is shared amongst three land own, landowners. One private landowner, the University of Waterloo, uh, owns the top of the light side of the cliff. Um, which houses the majority of the difficult routes. And then the bottom section is owned by Grand River Conservation Authority. And so, you know, initially they, the, the opposition was we would need to get each of those landowners together and we would need to put together 
an agreement that would essentially indemnify them against liability concerns. That's all easily done. We've done that with a number of other stakeholders and, and landowners, whether it's the Niagara Parks Commission, whether it's um, even within Ontario Parks at Bon Echo. We've also worked with private landowners. Like there's lots of different ways in which you can solve this problem. And um, I think you know we're all pretty aware of that. The second issue that was brought forward was the sensitivity of the, of the environment and the fact that there are some rare ferns. This is something that comes up in Ontario a lot, the rarity of our ferns, uh, the rarity of uh, smooth cliff break uh, being provincially rare and significant, despite the fact that if you were to zoom out and look at how that smooth cliff break actually can be observed from Ontario to Quebec to Maine to Texas, so I think, you know, it's fair to say that 40 feet on, on a climbing wall is not going to negatively impact the, you know, the, the future of this fern. And then in addition to some of the ecological concerns, which, you know, some of them are real, the, the base of the, of the cliff is not set up for a sustainable, you know, staging environment. There is a stream that kind of passes underneath that cliff. And, um, I think you know, for it to be built for the long term, it would need, we'd need to essentially put a boardwalk in. And we offered to pay for that and, and do all the heavy lifting that would be required to do that, whether it's, a, a, you know, an environmental assessment and coordinating with um, the various uh, stakeholders that would have a say in how that is done on the Niagara Escarpment. And then the last piece that came up was, frankly, that, hey, if we allow climbing to, to continue here, What's to stop Buddy from drinking too many beers, walking over there and attempting to climb and hurting himself? And that was brought up several times. And I think, you know, we, we probably all know that uh, intuitively Buddy, who's camping, you know, half a, a kilometer over, it, it, should he find himself wandering over to the base of this cliff? I think he's going to have a hard time getting up, a, you know, even five feet off the ground in his tennis shoes on a 512. Yeah, it's, I mean, a couple things that are, are, you know, in these arguments that you see all the time, I mean, uh, that I want to kind of put a flag on is is that idea of like, yeah, this this small little hunk of cliff, you know, it's they always have this sort of slippery slope idea that, um, you know, if it's allowed here, then what's to stop the whole world from coming and, and bolting and climbing on everything? I mean, the the one of the access issues that is like the the redheaded stepchild of anybody I've ever talked to at the access fund and everything is that you know fixed anchors has have been closed in Canyonlands the national park I mean for decades now it's weird because no everyone like talks about how we can't let this precedent in this park start or this but I'm like there's a precedent they they shut it down and there was no organization at that time to say anything about it. And now it's kind of like in stone in, you know, set in stone to, to use a terrible pun. But that was kind of the issue there that this superintendent at the time had this idea. You know, he probably saw some, you know, picture of Smith rock or something. And that all of a sudden this, the entire park would have bolts sprouted out of it. And, and it's just absurd because like you said, this is a 40 foot chunk of cliff. It's, it's going to be contained there. We don't want to climb on the choss. That's, over there and that's over there it's it's just an interesting point that um again of, of a group of managers not understanding like the basis of 
of what climbing is really about or anything else. And then the liability thing is all, and, or the idea that, you know, just yahoos are going to go climb, you know, that pops up all the time too. I mean, it was part of the whole free solo discussion. Like what? Right. Now this is like any idiot's going to go and try to free solo cap. And every climber yeah, was like, yeah. no, 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 that's not going to happen. And, and yet, I mean, it was pervasive in mainstream media and everything that suddenly, you know, there'd be just like, the bros would be falling off of the free rider. Like, you know, yeah, like I, I have whatever dying flies, you know, in a, in a bottle or something. So I have a hard time with the liability piece because, you know, I think if you're allowing swimming in a, in a provincial park, I think it's very difficult to, to say that climbing, you know, doesn't have the legs to exist in a provincial park every year in that same area where they have gone that extra step to remove these bolts, there are, you know, issues with regards to swimming, drownings, very unfortunate incidents where people are losing their lives just through the, the natural course of recreating. So, you know, climbing is is a pretty safe sport overall when you look at things. And I think that there's, you know, there's definitely a, a, a way that we can participate in these environments and, and still not cause an issue from that perspective. So, yeah, it's fascinating too. The, I mean, climbing is, especially that type of climbing, we're talking about short sport climbing and that that's also an issue and has always been, I mean, with insurance companies and things like that, that, um, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to get life insurance as climbers, but you know, they literally ask you how high do you climb, you know, and, and if you climb a, a, a thousand feet, it's, you know, more dangerous than if you climb 50 feet or whatever, like, or, right. or they ask you what altitude you climb at. Uh, Cause I, we just went through this like months ago and they, they really want to know at what altitude you go and climb. And it's like, they have no understanding of what it really means and how safe statistically you take that little 40 foot cliff and it's sport climbing. And if you broke that out and left out, you know, the, the people dying on Everest, it's like, statistically it, you're right. You know, swimming is much more dangerous and, and kills much more people. Um, and, and kids in particular, you know, are, 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 are really, it's a da dangerous activity for children if you look at it statistically. So yeah, it yeah. is fascinating. And I've never heard that argument. It, it's a great one because of like, it just jumped right to it. I'm like, yeah, I know swimming pools and swimming is super dangerous. Um, yeah. And, I think it and, cuts at the heart of the issue yeah. really, which is like, you know, on that other side, when you're answering those questions about how high are you climbing and what altitude and, and all that kind of stuff, you're, you got to wonder on the other side, like who are the subject matter experts here? Mm -hmm. Do they understand what they, you know, anything about the sport or are they lumping us all together? Uh, you know, are they lumping those Everest hikers in with, with, with sport climbers or with trad climbers, right? Oh, they certainly are. Yeah. yeah I'm for sure, they, sure are. they are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm like you know, sort of chuckling with it, but it's a morbid chuckle because they, they, of course, yeah, they yeah. just don't get it. Um, yeah. I mean, and then the other thing, I mean, I'll let, let you talk in a second, Andrew, is this whole idea of removing the bolts is fascinating too, because it has happened in the United States. It's ha happened. I know for one in, um, in Capitol reef national park, um, they removed anchors and I always laugh because I'm just like, I wonder what the fricking, uh, bill on that was, you know, you've mm -hmm. got some rope access company that's going to, upcharge because it's the government and they're going to upcharge because supposedly it's super dangerous. You know, this is high level work where we're going to 
you know, need to put in all this extra protection and safety equipment and things like that. And it's like, um, yeah, you know, that anchor could have been removed by a climber in like 10 minutes. Like, you know, well, in this case, so I'm sure exactly they just got, got wrecked on the freaking on the, the price tag of it all as well. I'm sure in, in, in our case, that's exactly what happened. So, you know, the, the climbing community got wind that this was occurring from the information that we've gathered, there was a rope access crew there uh, that began the removal process. Um, and with four individuals on this rope team, um, they began removing and spent the day removing, you know, what ultimately ended up being sort of five routes out of the, I want to say 40 or 50 routes. And then my understanding is a, a climbing crew went in that evening removed the remainder of the hangers and made it difficult mm -hmm. because of the the fact that the cliff is so overhanging for this crew to go in back the next day and smash in all the bolts. So yeah, it, it, the unfortunate part here is, you know, um, so wait, 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 hold on a second. Yeah. Let me hear that. So the climbers went in to, to botch the job. So they would, would have a harder time destroying the bolts. Oh, nice. <laughs> Welcome Love to it. the resistance. <laughs> exactly. I think that goes, uh, yeah, that, that falls in your bucket of uh, civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. Besides, yeah. you know, those are our hangers. They don't belong to you guys. <laughs> I guess I just, guess the thought was they might as well uh, keep some right. of the hardware, right? Right. Yeah, we go and, uh, yeah, exactly. Like get our bolts back. We were just, we just, you know, we're storing them there. Get our bolt hangers back. Yeah. Right. Anyway. Right. Um, How, just curious. Quick, I love quickly it. Curious, I the, like, nobody can see me, but I have the biggest smile on my face now. <laughs> I'm just kind of curious. Like, what's the, how did they remove the bolts? Did they do a good job with it? Or did they just like smash metal until it was unusable? Yeah. I, from what I understand, most of the crag was, or is um, expansion bolts, and there is the occasional glue-in. Uh, I think the glue-in certainly slowed them down, uh, and so you know the use of an angle grinder had to come out. And but from what I understand, um, you know it was what you would expect. They they came in, removed the hangers, um, punched in the stud, and away they go. Uh, I I think probably the reason why it took them as long as it did to get through five routes um, is because. Um, it is, you know, pr a pretty overhanging wall, and I don't know how much experience that crew might have with some of the common practices, I guess, of, of you know, rappelling in and, and, and making the job easier for yourself, so. Well, fuck them. Um, <laughs> I mean, seriously, it pisses me off so much to hear that. Yeah, um, it, it, uh, it, is, it is quite angering. So tell us a little bit more about the resistance, uh, formal or, <laughs> or otherwise. Um, you're kind of the face of the Ontario Alliance of Climbers. I like that word alliance, by the way. Um, it's more elegant than coalition or something like that. I guess if you're the Coalition of Ontario Climbers, that could be, what would the acronym be? Cock. So you don't want that. <laughs> I don't um, think you're the first person to make that joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so do you guys have like, uh, is, is that the, the, the organization that's working with the government to kind of mitigate this disaster? Uh, do you guys have like an access fund equivalent up there in Canada? There's like some interesting parallels here between what's going on in the U.S. here where we just had you know, the access fund on our behalf, like introduce legislation into Congress that 
mm-hmm. specifically acknowledges rock climbing as a acceptable activity on public lands. And it, it, Canada, for some reason, went the complete opposite direction and made rock climbing prohibitive. So how did that happen? I mean, like, that just seems like in 2023, when rock climbing has a huge presence, it's in the Olympics, it's all, all of these things are, are have made it less uh, scary, less um, kind of bizarre to people. It's much more mainstream. How, how did it happen that, you know, in recent years, Canada decided to ban rock climbing essentially from, from these protected areas? It's a great question. Um, what I will point out is that it, it, this is not Canada wide. There are many provinces in Canada that have figured out a solution and have Mm -hmm. worked with their provincial government to make it happen. So, you know, in recent years, you know, COVID, did have an impact, particularly here in Ontario. Toronto was one of the most locked down cities in the world, you know, over 300 days locked down. And as a result, many, many people went outside. One of the other things I didn't mention is that we do have just an absolute explosion of gyms in in the greater Toronto area and in Ontario. We have 53 gyms now, and it seems like one is popping up every single day. So there's there's definitely this force of climbers that are coming out of the gyms and looking for ways to connect with nature. But how did this happen? Um, we don't have an access fund. We don't have a, a national um, body that, that uh, oversees or helps um, access across all provinces. Um, and we we here in Ontario have lost a lot of climbers to the West. We've, we, you know, a lot of people have moved out West because frankly, they're just sick of the shit and they're sick of being made to feel like they're criminals because they want to recreate. And it's, it, it, I, I don't blame them necessarily. So how did we get here? That's a, a difficult question to, to, to answer aside from saying that, you know, I think there has definitely been some feedback that has been provided to some of the landowners uh, that has come up out of the wake of COVID, I think it's probably best referred to as nimbyism. Like I don't, I just don't want the stuff in my backyard. And there, I think there's probably also some, some stuff to shoulder on our part as well. You know, at at the, uh, the Ontario Alliance of Climbers, I think, you know, perhaps we haven't had the most direct strategy over the last few years. And maybe this is the, the catalyst that we need to get climbers to coalesce. And to squeeze out the last little bit of optimism. Because um, frankly, I think, you know, there's a lot of pessimism as a result of the landscape of, of climbing access here. Um, but maybe this is the impetus for us to, to, to band together and to, um, you know, to, to make our voice heard. So where we're at is we, we have engaged with the Ministry of Environment here in Ontario. We've met with their office and they seem to be interested in at least having the discussions around climbing. The conservative government that's here in power in Ontario is quite motivated by economics. And I think that the time is, you know, it's good timing for us to make that compelling argument around tourism, <clears throat> excuse me, around tourism and around the the economic driver that climbing <clears throat> can provide so you know there's there's quite a few communities that are supported solely by by climbing i'm i'm sitting you know right now in lionshead ontario that is a community that really has grown to embrace climbers 
and many climbers have purchased homes here, either primary residents or secondary residents. And I think there's a compelling argument there. So we have met with the ministry. They seem open to it, but they want to know that there's votes attached to it. So what we've done is we've gone forward and launched a website, climbinparks.ca. And I'm going to plug it here because as much support as we can get outside of Ontario will help us as well. So you don't need to be a climber in Ontario. If you've recently moved out west, if you are you know, sitting in your van in Utah or at the Red River Gorge and you have likely bumped into somebody who comes from Ontario, you can help us out. And, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I've spoken to all the Ontario climbers and I've been authorized to say that if you can prove to an Ontario climber that you have written a letter, they will buy you a beer. <laughs> so please do that. Take the, take the three minutes and, and fill out the letter. And if you bought yourself a beer or a margarita or a kombucha, a com- whatever. A kombucha, as I Yeah, say, whatever kombucha. you drink. A wheatgrass shot. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they still do those? Do people still do those? <laughs> so we've got 10 weeks to, to make an impact. We're, we're, um, we've thrown sort of an arbitrary goal out there of, of getting uh, 3,000 letters. I think we're roughly at around 600 letters now. Mm. Um, we're only a week into this campaign, but you know, pulling on all of our contacts, setting up, um, setting up a force at all the gyms to go in there and just, uh, make sure that everybody that climbs understands that while they may climb in the gym today, you know, let's invest in our future and make sure that they have a place to grow as they go outside of the gym. I was thinking about this story last night and just in terms of the, the, this kind of mentality about the concerns over the environmental or ecological impacts of rock climbing. And there's this very, I just find that argument so infuriating because it's such a misconception of what climbing's impacts really are. And our impact in in nature, I find to be so minuscule, like the, Mm -hmm. in terms of other sports, I mean, like look at skiing or something like that, where they, you know, they, you have to clear cut a whole forest to make a, a blue run down a mountain. It's just so, so minimal and like bolts in the wall, like you can't see those from, you know, 50 feet away. And the, the benefits, just the, the, um, the richness of experiences that are provided for a route that, you know, will, service like thousands of climbers over the next 50 years it's it's such a tiny impact for such a a profound and important benefit you know there's just like a very simple calculate like utilitarian calculus that you can do there where it's it's just like obvious that climbing is good for society and i i wish that that could be explained better to anyone who who sort of doesn't see it see it through that lens but yeah, I don't know. I, th- there's no question there, but I, I was just kind of musing about how, yeah, cr- how p- important th- climbing is, and versus what a relatively tiny footprint we have. I think that there's a couple things there. You know, I think that the bolt gets a bad rap. I think that that visually looks like something that should have some sort of environmental impact, and and it looks like it's. Um, it must be doing something, right? It must be doing something bad for the environment. But the reality is, you're right. It's it's, you know, a climbing route is a gateway for folks to to create these meaningful connections with nature. And it's, I think that that's extremely important. You know, there's going to come a time where 
these natural spaces need people to vote in favor of them, need people to, to advocate for them, especially in Southern Ontario. Ontario is often called unterrible. And th the reason for that is because from a recreational perspective, there seems to be this slow burn war on recreation. Mountain bike trails have recently been uh, significantly removed at an area not too far away from Devil's Glen. There's a local homeowner uh, uh, that kind of backs up, up on Devil's Glen that has taken to removing bolts himself with a, a stepladder. Um, and, and I might say doing a terrible job of it. So, you know, I think, I think you're absolutely right, Andrew. There's, there's, this provides such a benefit, immediate and downstream to folks, to our health, and, and economically that it, it, you know, in some ways, maybe it's, it's a challenge of education. It's a challenge of, you know, maybe we've been making the wrong argument for the last 20 years in terms of why climbing is important and why we should keep it. There's also this other frustrating element um, that I've noted. People in cities like the idea of protected spaces, like they're pro conservation in wi these wild places that they, the, they know exist, but they'll never visit themselves, but th they like that idea. And that has downstream impacts to people like yourself and like us who, who choose to live in kind of more rural places to be close to rock climbing. I, I do find that attitude just it, I, I understand it comes from this very genuine place of wanting to protect nature and being pro nature and stuff like that. But if conservation means that you can't use the lands in a way that again, is such a minimal impact and is provides us like huge psychological and spiritual benefit to, to the people who get to participate in these sports. And I just don't think that's that conf, that kind of conservation is really, valuable um but it's often the kind of that vision of conservation is like lands where no people can go and they're just preserved in this like proverbial glass case forever you know um that is a very compelling argument to a lot of people especially people who live in cities who don't understand and don't kind of grasp the the importance of actually being able to interact with these places of course doing it responsibly and all of that but like still being able to go there and run, bike, swim, and yes, rock climb. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, our view is that the recent actions of Ontario Park to shut down climbing at Devil's Glen, frankly, it's misplaced conservation. If you look at the impacts that are occurring across parks, and I should mention that Devil's Glen is considered a non-operating park, as well as Lion's Head, both are considered non-operating parks, which really means that there's no park staff there. There's no one to clean up the garbage. There's no one to man the gate, so to speak. But in a population of 10 million people congregating in the southern part of Ontario, in my opinion, there is no such thing as a non-operating park because people are, are recreating there regardless. But in terms of misplaced conservation, it's difficult for us as climbers to be out there in these spaces and to see water bottles being thrown above us, to hear a drone literally every single day of every single weekend flying above the cliff uh, and have hikers that are not confined to a, a prescribed trail because frankly, the infrastructure just hasn't been put in place. And as a result, seeing 
you know, seeing the impacts just spider through these areas, it's difficult for us to accept that a group that is, I don't know, a hundred times smaller or 500 times smaller, uh, being targeted and told that we can't recreate outside because we have negative impacts to, uh, to cliffside ecology or, or, you know, to, um, to you name it. So, you know, I think it's important to realize or to, to, to reiterate that, you know, us at the OEC, we're not against working with them to, to create a plan, a management plan that works for, for climbing. And we recognize that maybe we're not going to be able to climb in every single corner of every single park. But what I would like to see is true, you know, conservational outcomes that, that have direct impacts that are positive, um, not sort of putting blinders on and saying climbers are the problem, but we're, we're really not looking at, at, you know, the true impacts that are occurring around us. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. You, you know, you've hit on something that, uh, I, I think goes back to like our access fund, um, kind of discussion is that, you know, climbing has always been this easy target of, uh, you know, a very small group of people and we can do this. I mean, it's going back to the whole Canyonlands anchor thing. Like, the the absurdity of that as a conservation idea is you know it's almost hard to to explain it like this is a park where there's towers and the you know so far off the beaten path that there's no way anyone could ever see an anchor i mean it's just a, the absurdity of it is is overwhelming and that's always been the tool is like we can just take these climbers out because they don't have a voice and you know we have this sort of political voice your your guys's angle of having a political and economic voice um, is just a kind of the only way because otherwise, yeah, we, we, you know, they can just sort of put us under the thumb. And I, I think one of the hallmarks of this whole thing that's I think pretty fascinating and, and unfortunate is just the, you know, you, we talked about a resistance on your end, but the, it's, they've, they've caused that. I mean, it sounds like it's, it's unilateral. There's no discussion. The signs appear in, I think that is really fascinating. And again, going back to having these groups that, that speak up because yeah, I mean, I don't know, you're obviously extremely frustrated by that, but it, I think it just breeds this animosity that then like, you know, you do create a resistance because, you know, fuck the man because they are talking to us kind of a thing. Yeah. You don't have a choice. The moment that you ban something, you are, you are choosing a relationship of enforcement, right? You're choosing that now I no longer have a willingness to work with a user group. I'm now taking uh, a motivated group and I am, I am putting them I- I- as an offender. And the moment that you ban something, you're rel- relinquishing control to influence, to regulate, to shape those impacts. And so what choice does the climbing community have other than to, to resist and it's a difficult line to walk when you're you know, part of a, an access coalition. And, and we have some great relationships with a number of, you know, great partners and those partners, they understand, you know, they understand that some of the other f- folks that have chose uh, or land managers that have chosen not even to have the conversation, uh, frankly, they think it's silly because they see that this is a motivated group of individuals that, overarchingly is very caring of the environment and will pick up someone else's garbage. Um, so it's difficult, you know, it's difficult to, uh, 
to really have any criticism of that resistance. Yeah, and certainly the, you know, I think I, I read in maybe one of the Gripped articles or something, you know, this this idea too that, oh, and meanwhile, you know, you're selling off timber rights and, um, you know, allowing mining. And that's certainly like, especially here in the West is, you know, this ridiculous, again, this ridiculous absurdity of like, well, you guys can't expand that campground, you know, another four acres to get a few more people in there. But, you know, down the road, we're going to put in a drilling pad, like new problem. Like that's, that's totally fine. And of course it's economically driven, which is of course politically driven because the gas industry pays the politicians to pass the laws that allow them to drill there. And we don't necessarily have that kind of pocket, but, but again, like the absurdity of this conservation uh, argument, if you're meanwhile doing that is just, you know, uh, on the face of it, it's, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. And so, uh, yeah, and and Andrew's point of of what our our impact is 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 and, and it's and the thing I was going to get at too that bothers me is how we as climbers play into that um, you know social media and stuff. It's like we're you know people are always crowing about how climbers did this or climbers did that, like the climbers are you know blaming us for and it, it's like you you know I think of the Indian Creek thing with the cryptobiotic soil like you know, the access fund and everybody makes this huge deal about walking on cryptobiotic soil, which is, is terrible. Yeah. Don't do it. But we don't, we walk on the trails, like climbers don't just wander around the desert willy nilly. Like, Mm -hmm. so the, the idea that we're all out there just like crisscrossing, you know, these pristine spots is just not real. And it's like, if, if that's all we ever talk about, anyone else looking in is being like, well, why are the climbers walking on cryptobiotic soil? It seems like it's this huge deal. Everybody's making this huge deal out of it. And it's like, we don't, we walk on the trails. Like we want to go to the cliff the fastest way possible so we can go climbing. We are not like walking a hundred yards that way and then walking back. And then, you know, it's just, do you know what I mean? Like we play yeah. into this like thing yeah. that we're out there just like raging all over the environment. And yeah, yeah. 10 feet out from the cliff, gets impacted all right and then there's another like a hundred thousand acres hundred thousand square miles of desert that does not receive impact from climbers like yeah it, climbers yeah, are so wired I, wired i'm just for on efficiency. my rant now but yeah no it's true climbers are yeah. wired for efficiency right you, you yeah i don't know about you but i take the same way to the cliff the same way every time and no you know you, you walk a hundred yards a different direction every time don't you I mean, that's, you know, like, what can I no, trample take on the now? trail, the trail that we put in to get to the cliff is the thing we walk on. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> but it's, like I said, the media is like, or like even us are like acting like that's what happens. And it, it drives me crazy. It's like, no, that's not what happens. Like, let's talk about what really happens and what the real impacts are. And, and we're, you know, we also have an internal strife about bolts that, the mm-hmm. all the land managers I know of pick up on and they yeah. use our own arguments against us. And it's yeah. it's like shut up. <laughs> you know, yeah. I just keep yeah, saying it, that. In I, some ways we're yeah. our own worst enemy. You know, <laughs> right. last year last year we did uh Ontario Parks actually installed signage in uh a couple parks that said um no rock bolting because they have deemed bolts as bad. And you know, we had to have a conversation with them around well, what's the alternative? Do we go back to smashing pitons and cracks? Is that is that what we you know need to do to, or or do we need to 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 have a conversation around 
why bolts exist and, and, and how they are different, how they provide a much more sustainable anchor versus smashing a piton in and just letting it rust for the next 30 years. Or wrapping a tree. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right, Mike. So you mentioned this website to, to point our listeners toward uh, to write a letter um, mm-hmm. and receive a, their token-free beer from anyone in Ontario. Um, <laughs> what else can we do to, to support you guys? What do you need? Do you need lawyers? Do you need donations? Like what, what would, do you think would be the most helpful thing? Do we need to listen to more Rush on Spotify? Definitely more rush, yes. <laughs> I mean, couldn't you guys do that? Couldn't you just all come to the table with your mutual love of rush? I mean, of those 10 million people that live down there, like, I mean, 9.9 million of them are at least casual rush fans. Like, <laughs> just open the, ar- open the negotiations with, you know, playing side one of moving pictures and, you know, and I think you guys could go from there. I think we need a rush yeah, benefit think- concert. <laughs> on top of lions i think Ooh. that or uh or tragically hip i think that would be the other one. Oh yeah yeah oh yeah yeah you're right yeah there's even more of like a sort of angry love of of them of like why does no one know about these exactly. guys in the united states yeah, <laughs> exactly totally. yeah um the rush reunion andrew has passed unfortunately yeah. um yeah so but anyhow sorry but i interrupted i've been waiting to get a rush joke in um <laughs> <laughs> i love rush by the way um like really love rush like <laughs> Used to go see him like three nights in a row, like the dead, like deadheads would. Um, wow! And then you know, and then sit around and compare set lists and blah blah blah. So I think the in the short term, I think the the number one thing that folks can do is take the three minutes, go to the website. It's www.climbinparks.ca. Just go to it. You can see that there's a, a section where if you're not uh, an Ontario resident, you can you can still fill out a letter. Um, it's really quite easy. Um, you don't have to personalize it, but you know, if you just fill it out, use the talking points that we've provided, you you know, that will help us. It will go a long way and it will show that there is a a motivated force behind ensuring that recreation is part of Ontario's future planning. So that's the first thing. And then aside from that, you know, we are, we do have a plan over the next two months to reach out to various influential folks and see if we can get, you know, them to, to echo our message and um, share what we're doing um, and lend a hand. But in the short term, I think that the, the number one thing is, is go to the site, fill out a letter, um, get your friends to do it, get your mom to do it, get your grandpa to do it, and that will help us. Aside from that, come to Ontario and climb. Come see what we've got. Well, wasn't... I mean, is there a, like an angle in there to talk about tourism with these letters? Because I think that, you know, going back to this economic driver, I'm coming to Ontario. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you're out of, exactly, if you're out of province or you're, um, you're uh, an American, we do actually have quite a few Americans that do come up to Ontario to, um, to enjoy the rock that we have here. Um, lots of folks from Michigan, Ohio, and, and New York. Um, and... You know, it's there's a lot of people that are taking those very long drives to get to the Red River Gorge and um, not realizing that, or well, some are realizing that the drive to to Ontario to some of our crags is a little bit shorter, and in some cases, in the heat of the summer, a little bit uh, a little bit nicer. So, um, you know, if you're uh, if you're in that area, please send a letter. 
um, and protect uh, your future. You, you may find a time that you want to come to Ontario and check out the, the limestone, the granite, um, and hang out. And um, like I said, if you do it and you can prove to me that you've done it, I'll buy you a beer. I'm Olsen, eh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a Labatt 50. <laughs> As runout aficionados know, big wall free climber Jordan Cannon holds a very special place in our hearts here at the runout, and we think he's quite fond of us as well. On the latest bonus episode for Rope Guns Only, Jordan Cannon returns to talk about his upcoming trip to Pakistan. Pakistan, that's so cool. Are you getting super psyched for your trip? And I just immediately like imagined myself being like sick in a tent, like shitting my brains out like in the snow for a week. <laughs> his love of Indiana Jones. I, I've just always loved him as a character or somebody who represents a lot of passion um, and, and heart. The gay climbing life. My friends were like, oh, like, what are you going to wear to the pool party? I was like, I don't know, just like some like Patagonia baggies or something. And they're like, dude, no, like no. <laughs> everybody there is going to be wearing a Speedo. And I was like, no, they're not. They're like, all right, you're going to be the only weird one not wearing a Speedo of some sort. And they were right. They were super right. <laughs> as well as his ascent of wet like a nightmare, working on Alex Honnold's hurt, and so much more. If you want to hear this candid and often hilarious bonus app and all the other sweet bonus material, sign up to become a rope gun today at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. That's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to support the runout. Today's final bit is some buddy spray from Nick to Haas in Maine. If you have a buddy who's sending the gnar in climbing or in life and you'd like to spray about your friend, join us on Patreon for information on how to submit your spray. To share our gratitude for all those climbers out there who care more about spraying about their friends and themselves, we're sending Nick a Yeti water bottle. Again, if you want to participate in this buddy sprayathon, just go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and sign up to support the show. You'll get bonus episodes and other perks like this. Be a buddy. Patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. It's hard to say how I feel about Alex. When I find that I feel truly familiar with the nuances of the feelings I have towards someone, it's because I've spent a not insignificant amount of time reflecting on them. Generally because they're fraught somehow or another. And the reflection has been purposeful with the intention of finding understanding. On rare occasions, that reflection is spontaneous and comes from a real sense of equal parts unencumbered joy and astonishment. My friendship with Alex hasn't been defined by any of this. There's been no friction at the border between us, and so I've never really examined it. Nonetheless, he's likely been the most consistent presence in my life for the last three years. We lived through and talked through and climbed through and grew through all the national, cultural, and global inflection points of the last three years. And, as I record this, he's driving across the country to make a life for himself in Salt Lake City. And so, in the last few months, for the first time since we met, I find myself faced with my feelings towards Alex. Friction at the border, because the border is shrinking. And I could let it slide away, aware of the sadness, but taking for granted my ability to move beyond it. And in doing so, let it slide into dormancy, into another phase, one maintained by phone calls and biannual visits, 
holiday cards and happy birthday texts with no fanfare at all. But that seems like an enormous disservice to one of the most meaningful friendships of my life. I love making friends. Getting to know people in the context of growing connection is the most reliable source of joy and warmth and presence that I know how to access. And my friendship with Alex has been an uninterrupted source of all of this for more than three years. He's been a support in moments of heartbreak. He's celebrated my victories and consoled me in defeat. His friendship has meant more to me in the last three years than I ever realized in the moment. And climbing seems to do that. Maybe it's anything. Maybe the same thing happens between golf buddies or racquetball partners. I don't know, but I can't imagine it does. Climbing is seen from within as this sport of individual achievement and struggle against yourself. The relationships are there, a part of it all, sewn into the fabric of the experience, coming and going but rarely dwelt on. And yet day after day, week after week, we hold the life of our partner in our hands, and they hold ours in theirs, and nobody dies playing golf. So as he drives away, I want to say thank you, Alex. I see you. I'm a better person, climber, and friend than I would have been without you. I love you. I will miss you. I do miss you. Be well, drive safe, and I will see you soon. You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Kalous. And you can reach me at Andrew at runoutpodcast.com. Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, 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 it's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. No, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money. Give us some money.